So, Birdo, what do you know about Roseanne Barr? Roseanne Barr. Well, I mean, I used to watch Roseanne back in the, the heyday uh, of that show, and I loved it. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I had a crush on the blonde girl, <laughs> and I just I thought it was a very kind of human show, and I enjoyed yeah. it. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the blonde girl in the Roseanne show. No, just joking. <laughs> I want to talk about Roseanne Barr. I want to analyze her personality. What do you say? I think that sounds fascinating. Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and I think my favorite character on Roseanne Barr was the boyfriend of the middle child girl who eventually was on Big Bang Theory. Mm. Well, I've already given uh, away who my favorite character was. But my name is Humberto Castaneda, and I develop cable. So, the caveat here is, ethically speaking, I cannot diagnose from afar. It's ridiculous to do such a thing uh, for a number of reasons, which I always talk about. The other thing is that all my analysis of Roseanne Barr's personality is based on internet information and nothing else. So all of it could be lies, literally. Um, and uh, none of that is a substitute for me working 10 to 20 sessions with a willing client, which is how long it takes me to uh, assess someone's personality. So you're guaranteeing your diagnosis. Right. Uh, but having said that, for educational purposes, I, I think it, it is sometimes useful to look at someone's online personality and kind of comment on it from a clinical perspective. Yeah. So um, let's look at her personality. And then after I summarize her personality, I'm going to go into her life and talk about maybe where the personality came from. Yeah. Uh, what would you say about her personality? I had, even before recent events, I had always considered her uh, loudmouth, controversial, and sort of like, I don't give a flying fuck what you think. This is what I think. Yeah. Uh, I remember when she sang the national anthem at some baseball game, and it was a complete train wreck. But it was like on purpose, sort of, and she didn't give a shit. It was really weird. So stuff like that. And I, I mean, and to be fair, even her toned down persona in her show was sort of like the I tell it how it is kind of character, even though it was a much more you know vanilla version of it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was my impression of her. I also knew about her husband. Uh, what was his name? You know, Tom Arnold. True Lies, Tom Arnold. Uh, I tend to like his sense of humor. And I always felt like, I remember like thinking, wow, how could he, like she would walk all over him. It was my thought back in the day. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think about, so I have it kind of categorized here. There are some people who would just characterize her, and I've thought this before too, is that, you know, she seems crazy. You know, they'll yeah. be like, she's mentally ill. I would have never said that. Oh, okay. But I mean, I could see how recently, uh, based on some of the behavior, that, that, that could be brought up. I, I kind of had that impression, or at least of the, that was the media. I had that impression that the media had that impression, you know, like oh, yeah. she's, she's off the hook. She's yeah. going crazy. And um, she and others are actually blamed. You know, she had that recent tweet, right? Yeah. And she and other people are attributing that tweet to her quote-unquote mental illness. Yeah, I heard that. Because the, the tweet was, uh, was it's sort of racist, right? Or it was... Yeah. Came out, so I think that 
the uh, a, the usual Roseanne would have just kind of maybe come out and doubled down on it or whatever, but it sounded like she sort of walked it back and blamed it on the drugs that were due to the uh, mental well, illness. Well, we'll get into all the different uh, excuses she had about that uh, when I go into the chron- chronology of her life, but... Um, but one of the things that she attributed to was, was mental, quote unquote, mental illness, which it's like, well, which mental illness, you yeah. know, because it doesn't, you know, if you have anxiety, that doesn't make you tweet, uh, you know, funny things. Um, so, uh, so let's look at what I do think she has. So I, so I don't agree with the, the gen, which is a ridiculous di- quote unquote diagnosis anyway, of her just being generally mentally ill <laughs> but i find that a lot of people will, will kind of characterize it like tom arnold even will say like you realize that tweet came from a woman who was quote-unquote mentally ill yeah and it's just like well which mental illness are you talking about you know yeah um so i speculate complete speculation based on the very little <laughs> that i know on the internet is that she has she's on the spectrum of narcissism and hist- histrionic personality Okay. Uh, if you want to learn about narcissistic personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder, you can become a patron of the podcast and get access to my deep dives. Uh, patrons of the podcast are the only ones who can listen to these deep dives. I go, you know, several hours talking about narcissism and, and histrionic. Um, but let me explain. So, people with personality d- disorders are mistreated as a child, and she has talked about that extensively throughout her life, being abused by both of her parents, mistreated. And that results in her having low self-esteem and a lack of self. I've talked about that in other episodes as well. Lack of self, in a nutshell, is the um, we. there's a critical period in our development as children when we learn who we are and what we are, how we feel. And when you're mistreated, you miss that to some extent. So it's hard to know how you feel, who you are, what you want. And so when you lack a self, it's hard for you to have any goals in life that mm-hmm. are consistent because you're more reacting to the outside world rather than to an internal sense of of mission. If that makes right. any sense, um, doesn't mean you don't have. Because I think I think the the term you know self is sort of misinterpreted, perhaps because it can sound like oh you don't have a personality or you don't you know, but it, it's really. They'll appear, in fact, in Roseanne's case, for example, full of personality and right. and very specific about their choices, it seems like. Right. Some people who lack a self will actually adopt a gre- gregarious self because they don't know what else to do. Right. So it's it, – when, once we get into chronology of our life, uh, I'll describe this, but she actually got early accolades in life for uh, being on stage, being uh, the center of attention – and for even being a little gregarious with, mm-hmm. with herself early in life. And so this saved her self-esteem from the abuse. It's like you're abused as a kid. You feel like crap. You feel like you're worthless. You feel like the world is an unsafe place. And then you're given this platform. You're on a stage, right. literally. And all of a sudden, you're getting all these accolades. You're getting safety. You're getting attention. You're getting love. You're getting self-esteem. And when that's the only way, you know, for an average kid, it's like they feel loved, they feel safe, they feel paid attention to. And, you know, they also like to get on stage and get some attention that way. But when the only way you get love and attention and any sense of who you are as a person on the stage, then that 
solidifies a particular kind of personality, namely narcissism or histrionic. Then you have to interrupt every five seconds during a podcast to say something so your voice is heard. <laughs> um, so that happened to her. Um, also, I'm guessing she found that negative attention is better than no attention early in life because she seems to crave negative attention. That definitely seems to be. Yeah. So let's look at some evidence as to you know this claim that I'm making regarding uh, histrionic and narcissism. I'm oh, not sorry. So- and by the way, uh, regarding the negative attention, that that was um, the piece that I was talking about with the when she sang the national anthem is that most people, if if you're like ah, I can't sing so well or my voice is terrible or whatever, like you're not going to volunteer or you know if someone asks like Do you want to come sing at this thing? You're not going to say yes, but you might if you actually don't mind. The negative attention, or in fact, seek any kind of attention. That, and when you suffer from narcissistic personality, and I'm not saying she has the disorder. My conceptualization is uh, the non-DSM conceptual. We, we tend yeah. to be dominated by the DSM. It's, it's just one book out of thousands. Personality, you know, books that discuss personality, they don't talk about disorders. They just talk about spectrums and, and personalities, and so I'm talking about it in terms of that. When you have histrionic and or narcissistic personality spectrum, you are compelled to go on stage whether it's a good idea or not. Yeah. Like if someone asks you to go on stage, you don't have a self to reflect on to say like, well, is this a good idea? You right. know, you just like, oh, on stage, go. You know, that's where you get love. That's where you get acceptance. Let's do this. Right. Um, so the evidence is that uh, she, she talked – the way she talked – so – a lot of people will, on the internet, diagnose people like, oh, this person clearly has narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality or psychopathic personality. And here's the thing. Unless you're a clinician who works with these people day in and day out for decades, you really don't know what the profile is. Uh, and when you are an expert in the area, you actually, you actually can pick up on things pretty quickly. Like, for example, I can assess someone – when I first started in the profession – I was trained as a clinician. It took me, I don't know, half an hour, maybe three sessions to assess major depressive disorder. It took mm-hmm. me a long time because I didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't know what the answers meant. You know, it's like, well, are you depressed? And it's just like, yeah, I'm depressed. You're like, what does that mean? Like, you know, now I can assess depression within like 15 seconds. It, wow. it, it's, there are certain hallmarks that I have learned and and mannerisms and phrases that people will use that it doesn't take much time at all. Now, major depression is much easier to assess than narcissistic personality. But anyway, the point it's is... It's funny. Sorry. I, I can diagnose depression in 20 seconds because I ask you, and it takes me five seconds to ask you. <laughs> so the way that she talks is indicative of a profile of people on narcissistic and histrionic spectrum. I see. She, she just has kind of, even when she's just casually talking, she just has this way of speaking that comes from a place of look at me. Wow, I was going to tell you something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, when she, I watched a lot of, in my mini deep dive here, I've watched a lot of interviews with her. Uh-huh. And when she's just at home talking, she doesn't talk like that. She doesn't you know what I mean? yell the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> she's not screaming the whole time, which is something I want to point out. It's like, if you're just depending on like the few clips that sort of sneak through to you in the news, like that's not representative of who she is. I mean, my impression is just from the TV show. 
And, you know, she always kind of talks like this in the TV show. Right. So that's in the direction of her personality. But yeah. But anyway, um, she has a pattern in life of look at me. And when we get into the chronology of her life, she – I had – there's 99% of the things that she has done I was unaware of. <laughs> You know, she, she loves being on stage. Wow. She loves being in the spotlight. And so that's indicative of someone with narcissistic personality histrionic. Now, just being on stage is not an indication of narcissism or histrionic, but when you are doing all these things and you end up shooting yourself in the foot a lot, right. which is the definition of these, of these conditions, then we start looking at, a, at, at an issue there, and she does that a lot. Um, I think you've said before that just because someone does something doesn't mean it's harmful to them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, every every person who tweets a lot is not on narcissistic spectrum. Right. You know, it, it's only if it's a compulsion, so to speak, or it's the only way you can get it, get self-esteem, or you... Uh, end up doing it to such an extent that it actually, you know, hurts you in the end. Like if I came to you, I'm like, my friend Bobby hollowed out a watermelon and had sex with it. You wouldn't be like, commit Bobby now. But when I come to you, I'm like, Bobby's gone broke buying watermelons. <laughs> then it might be a problem. <laughs> or his penis like dissolved away from that. From the acid from of the, the acid. Um, sh- So she also loves to shock people. Like even in interviews, she will sort of dip into very shocking statements that is very indicative of people with histrionic personality. So histrionic can be – so people generally know what narcissism is, you know, grandiose self, uh, high – sort of a, a – you're masking a lack of self-esteem with this grandiose false self. With histrionic, it's very similar to narcissism, but – it's more along the lines of I need attention all the time, hmm. um, I, and I I might get it through sexual kind of uh, bids. Right. You know, I might if I'm a woman, I might sort of have my breasts showing a lot or something. Um, not that everyone that does that is histrionic, but right. um, but more importantly, it's like I have to get people to really know I'm in the room. So narcissistic people to a lesser extent, but histrionic people in particular, when histrionic people walk in the room, you're just like, wow, they are, they either are very good at like garnering attention and you walk away going like, there's something charismatic or electric about that person. Or they walk into the room, they garner a lot of attention and you're just like, my God, that person has, is just (laughs) annoying with how much sort of energy they sort of suck out of the room yeah. you know what i mean i've always admired histrionic people like alexander the great and julius caesar yeah exactly you're talking about history people yeah Caught thank you webster <laughs> like you have to spell out my jokes for the uh, other percentage of the audience that doesn't get <laughs> well i actually was confirming i was at sort of a question i was like are you talking about history um because one could absolutely argue that Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great were. This a little, is why my joke works in so, on many, so many levels. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, she loves to shock people, even when she is just kind of hanging out. Not when she knows she's on stage. There are certain. There's a certain way she talks where she will say things that are um, uh, very purposely. Uh, she has a pattern of purposely trying to shock people right uh trying you know she she's trying to bother people and again there's nothing 
quote unquote wrong with that. But when you have a pattern of that and often shooting yourself in the foot, then we're looking at you have a locked in coping style right. that was locked in because of mistreatment when you were young. Um, she's often in the limelight and she was seriously running for president. So did you know she ran for president? I, I remember something about this. I didn't think it was serious. I didn't think it was real. Neither did I, but people around her and I think herself in the interviews that I looked at, she was seriously as Trump was running for president. Come on, a TV personality getting elected. And-, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and her website, which I don't know how much she's involved in her website, but 99% of her website is boastful. Okay. Uh, like, just let me read some quotes here. They're like, you know, who is Roseanne Barr? Comedy superstar, award-winning actress, best-selling author, 2012 presidential, presidential candidate, and original domestic goddess, Roseanne Barr, continues to amaze. This is so, her website. <laughs> yeah. So this is her, essentially oh. it's her blog, you know. I should write a blog like that. So, uh, you know, maybe someone else wrote that because, you know, you're trying to market the site. Sure. But I have to imagine she had something to do with the wording of it, you know. I'd like to, I'd like to include the, the phrase continues to amaze in every description about myself going forward. Yeah. It also says, after nine years, uh, 224 episodes, four Emmy Awards, and countless other accolades, she single-handedly re-landscaped the medium of situational comedy forever. Wow. So, you know, that's a pretty... It's a big statement. Yeah. Like, I don't think just a random person would word it that way. Do right. you know what I mean? That sounds like... Especially single-handedly, right? Right. Single-handedly re-landscaped the medium of situational comedy forever. Right. Like her co-stars had nothing to do with it. The writers, the directors, <laughs> the producers, like, like, so I don't know, maybe she had nothing to do with those wording, but she must know about it. Right. And if she read it, cause that's like on the front page or something, you know, if you weren't narcissistic or histrionic, you'd be like, that needs to be toned down. Do you <laughs> right. know what I mean? Like, um, anyway, um, so looking at my notes here. Oh, also, she loves to claim she has a lot of disorders. Like over the years, she's made a lot of what I would call kind of on the grandiose side of claims. I see. Now, I'm not sure. She might actually have all these conditions. But one of the things that she often talks about is she has multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity identity disorder. Mm. And she might have it. It's a real thing. Um, some people quote unquote debate if it's a real thing it's a real thing i've i've treated people with it it's not the way it's de- depicted in you know m night Shyamalan movies for example <laughs> um but it's it's a thing and it's real but uh she often will be bragging about it you know like right. on joe rogan i think joe rogan asked her like so i heard you have multiple personality and he so you suffer from multiple personality she's like i don't suffer from multiple personality i I love the fact I have multiple personalities. Oh, was she like, I love my personalities. No, she doesn't do that, which would actually lend at least some evidence to yeah. it. Um, but people with dissociative identity disorder, they don't usually revel in the fact that they have it. It's usually uh, quite disturbing to that them. That seems, it would be very disturbing. And they're usually quite shameful of it, you know? Now, I'm not saying she doesn't have it, um, 
but there's a lot of people who, you know, say you're histrionic and you're narcissistic, you know, and you've learned that the only way you can get attention is by alarming people around you. Yeah. And you kind of feel like sometimes you're different people, you know, because sometimes you just fly off the handle and sometimes you're calm and sometimes you're happy and sometimes you want to kill yourself. Right. You could interpret that, and I've seen people do this. They'll be like, oh, I have multiple personalities. But when I really go through, you know, an assessment, which could take a long time, because what's the difference between, you know, a part of yourself that gets angry and an actual other alter? Because, you know, it's, there's a kind of a fuzzy line there and you have to rely on the client's assessment of that, you know, self-report. So they could, you know, they could report it as, oh, I am a completely different person when I'm in in that state. In fact, (laughs) I have done things while I'm angry that I don't even remember. That kind of sounds like dissociative identity disorder, but it could also just be the the way they're framing it or, you know, so it, I I don't know. I haven't assessed her, but the way she talks about her dissociative identity disorder sounds more histrionic than it does dissociative identity disorder. Like the Hulk has dissociative identities. (laughs) Actually, I've never thought about that before, but that's absolutely true. Another thing that I think she suffers from is what I'm going to call magical thinking. It's not really the the same thing. But, um, you know, she had early experiences with Judaism and Mormonism. Did you know she grew up in Salt Lake City? What? Yeah. I'm going to get into the chronology on that. That's incredible. So I'm going to describe that later. But I think she, because of her early experiences, kind of bizarre experiences with religion that were very over the top. Yeah. She developed, I think, a personality that is, uh, and I've seen this before, and it's not in the DSM, and it's rarely talked about. People like like this will have a lot of kind of weird conspiratorial or religious type thinking in their adult life. Yeah. And they're really quite rigid about it, and it's sort of impervious to data that people will throw out to them. Do you know any people like this? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> right. And did they grow up in a weird religious environment when they were young? Some of the people that I'm thinking of, definitely. Right. Yeah. So, you know, imagine you're four, five, six years old, yeah. and half of your world, or more even, yeah. is just dominated by demons and angels that are totally. around. And, uh, you know, d- you know, your mom might even say, I was possessed yesterday. You know, it gives you a very different sense of yeah. the world. Right, right. And as you grow up, you might reject your parents' religion, right. but you're sort of still open to very odd points of view that feel right to you because it was sort of injected into your persona, you know, your personality when you were very young. So in high school, so it, you know, when I was in Columbia... I was surrounded by a pretty homogeneous uh, religious set, right? Like everyone pretty much was Catholic. There might have been a couple Jewish people, but, you know, like mostly everyone was Catholic. Uh, But when I moved up here, of course, there was a lot more variety. And specifically in high school, some of my friends were uh, reborn Christians. But then when there was a subset of these friends that were the kind of reborn Christian that was firmly believers of uh, demon warfare and angels and demons battling at all times in current reality and all these things. And so in in their mind, like, and they would talk about this frequently, they were at constant warfare, spiritual warfare. 
So like something would happen in the middle of the day and they would just like all like break out into like furious prayer because they knew that like the demons were trying to do stuff. And this was their reality. And and if you had asked them like, like do you mean literally like there's like, yes, they're right in this room, like right now. So, you know, like when you're firmly convinced of that and, and they're still young, you know, teenagers, whatever, and that's your reality, like absolutely you're going to be open to a lot of different interpretations of right. things. <laughs> so my hypothesis and my observation is you take that person who has a, you know, who had a lot of neurons firing in that realm mm-hmm. growing up and let's say they grow up and they're just like, eh, I'm not into that anymore. But then they start hearing about like Illuminati. Right. It's, it has nothing to do with demons, but it, but it fits a certain comfort zone in their psyche right. that that other things don't, you know, like believing in what you see, you know, believing in concrete things, hard science. Doesn't does, feel familiar. <laughs> doesn't feel familiar to them. What feels familiar to them is, you know, things you can't see and things that are actually even rejected by scientists, mm. you know. And I've seen this, I, I hadn't ever thought about it until I did this mini deep dive on Roseanne Barr and that it's like, you know, you can actually have a personality, and I know research have actually, researchers have actually looked into this sort of, that is open to odd beliefs, is what I'm going to say. I'm not going to say they're wrong. I'm just saying they're out of the norm, you know? And uh, I, think, I think she actually suffers from that, given her history, which we'll get into in a second. Another thing that she suffers from, again, non-DSM stuff, is self-sabotage. Uh, masochism is a, you know, Freudian word. Um, basically, when you self-sabotage a lot, you have a personality of self-sabotage, personality of masochism, you subconsciously believe that you deserve abuse, essentially. Wow. And so you will do things in your life to incur abuse on you. Right. And uh, she does that a lot. I mean, <laughs> there are so many things she's done throughout her life that have almost seemingly purposely uh, drawn the ire of society uh, that it seems too much of a pattern. You know, after a while you would think she would learn, oh, I should be a little bit more careful or I should run this past a few people before I do them. And that tweet was just the latest example. Wow. Um, And the reasons why people do this is because it's comfortable to them because when you grow up abused, it can sometimes, and I've and I've actually worked with people professionally who are like this, who they will they'll be in a good place in their life, and they'll just be like, "I don't feel comfortable. Like I feel uneasy. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I feel anxious. I feel like you know I need to go back to that violence because right. <laughs> it doesn't feel right to me." Or or their life is going well and they're used to their life being a train wreck. Yeah. You know, just like normally I'm recovering from su- some substance issue or I got fired or financially things and right now everything's going well and I feel uneasy about it. Totally. <laughs> um, it's like with with me and money. Um it's it's been only yeah, really like the last maybe 5 years, maybe 8 years. But for the longest time Anytime I had paid down my debts or whatever and I had like money accumulating in the bank, I would start feeling like I got to spend that money. I got to spend this doesn't feel right. Like, you know, 
and and like would, it like it was uncomfortable. Yeah, interesting. Like, yeah, that's that thing. Like I got to spend the money. Right. It's irrational. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like why would it be uncomfortable when right. things are going well? Because when you have a deep seated belief that was taught to you when you were young that you are a piece of s, then you, uh, when your life is going as such that you're not a piece of s, then you are like something's out of whack yeah, it here. Yeah, foreign. That's yeah. not right. Yeah, I, I'm, I, sh- you know, this is all subconscious. I should feel like <laughs> I should feel worthless. Right. So what's going on here? Yeah. You know. Well, then you subconsciously self sabotage, and then you're like, okay, now I'm in the comfort zone. But consciously, you're like, well, this sucks because everyone hates me. You know. You see, I see this sometimes when, like, when I try to compliment some types of people. Like they, it's so obvious they really don't like compliments, hmm. uh, and I don't mean just like women, like m- men or whatever. It, it it doesn't matter. It's like a certain uh, type of person, and I'm imagining it has something to do with their, you know, their upbringing, personality, all these experiences. Because it's like it, it could be a thing like, you know, that that speech you gave was really good or something, and it's like, oh no, that was terrible, right? right? And you know, there's a difference between the the sort of perfectionist like like oh yeah it was okay but i really need to still work on this one section but it's really more like it's because you're giving a compliment the reaction is oh no that was horrible um i i used to struggle a little bit with this um in that i would have this mix like i remember when i first started playing shows i would have this mix of like after i was done playing i was so longing for everyone to come and tell me how amazing it was and I was really stressed if if no one if someone wasn't coming up, but as soon as someone would come up and say a compliment, I would I would immediately be like oh no 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 like totally dismissive, you know. And if someone and you know many people didn't come up or say anything, some people might even like come up and give me criticisms. I was like always internally like oh why is everyone not adoring me like this sucks right but again if someone's trying to give me a compliment i wouldn't react well and i i remember i started noticing this in other people and when i saw that it felt so bad to give compliments to someone that didn't like take them graciously that i started changing how i would react to a compliment Hmm. so that it wouldn't feel that bad (laughs) good what you're describing more is the narcissistic spectrum actually than the self-sabotage spectrum you know the uh, one, the compulsion to get up on stage. Two, the tremendous meaning that is placed on how people react to you when you're on right. stage. That your entire being is dependent on people not only just kind of liking it, which is like, you know, you you play, you write songs, you get a band together, you play on stage. What's the chance that everyone's going to be like, my God, <laughs> that was the best show I've ever seen in, in my life. I like, know this is your first show. <laughs> yeah. And I know I've never heard your music before right. and I don't even like rock that right. much, you know, like, but my God, that was amazing. And the shoot yourself in the foot part comes in because you're so needing it. And, and you're also so uh, embarrassed about needing it that when someone actually gives you a compliment, you kind of blow it off. Yeah. You're just like, Oh, well, whatever, you know, it's fine. Yeah, I, exactly. You know. Yeah. And it, it, it's that, and, and maybe also internally going like, that was terrible. 
Yeah. So like, if anyone compliments, not again, not literally, but subconsciously, like if anyone compliments me, they must be morons because that was terrible. Right. So that's, (laughs) that's a good description of the destructive side of narcissistic spectrum. You know, people often think, oh, he's so narcissistic. It's just like, well, if he is truly narcissistic personality, then he is truly suffering in the way that you were talking about. Right. Um, so let's take a break, and then when we get back, let's continue talking about Roseanne Barr. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't yet become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Again, as I said earlier, when you become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com, you get access to hundreds of premium episodes, such as our episodes on histrionic personality and narcissistic personality and borderline personality and um, suicide prevention and all these kinds of things. Anyway. Not only that, I say a lot of subliminal things in the episodes that only patrons can hear. Oh. So Roseanne, after doing a mini deep dive on her and watching a lot of interviews, she completely reminds me of someone that I knew very well 20 years ago. Almost like... Like in real life. Yeah, like they're twins. Oh, Do you wow. know what I mean? Uh, she, she, this was a friend of mine. She was abused, uh, mistreated. She was uh, considered very mentally unstable. Mm. She loved to shock people. I think she still does. Uh, She would just say the most outrageous things and kind of get away with it a lot. And, uh, people just knew her. Some people are actually kind of scared of her in the same way that you could imagine people scared of Roseanne. Yeah. Yeah. She well, was kind of got that sense from Tom Arnold. <laughs> like right. he was a little scared of her. <laughs> uh, she was deeply troubled, you know, very, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, she wasn't a happy camper all the okay. time. And I get the impression that Roseanne Barr is like that too. A lack of self, meaning hard, you know, she didn't really know how she felt. She didn't really know what her goals were in life. She didn't really know, you know, who she was as a person outside of being a shocking right. person. Uh, she was a little uh, narcissistic, a little histrionic. She had substance problems. Uh, my understanding of Roseanne Barr is, you know, she has a lot of substance problems. Maybe not like full blown heroin addiction, but like, um, like in the in the Joe Rogan interview, she talks about how she's only down to like, she, you know, she started smoking after the tweet. Oh, okay. And that that's you know that's interesting, right? It's well, like th- right. I, I mean, I had heard that she was on some medication when she did. She, she was on Ambien, Ambien, which right. we'll get into in a, in a bit. But um, she she talks about starting smoking because of the tweet. So that <laughs> that that tells you you're sort of oriented towards substances right. to, to soothe yourself. And then she <laughs> like, and then she talks about how she hates smoking all the time. You know, uh, she hate. Oh, she hates it. Yeah, she she's like it's. I'm trying to quit, and so oh, she, yeah. so on the Joe Rogan podcast, she's talking about how she's down to ten cigarettes. But in that episode, I think she smokes twenty twenty cigarettes. <laughs> I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. <laughs> well, but my but my supposition is that she isn't down to ten cigarettes, but she wants to be down to ten cigarettes. You know, I don't yeah. know. I just, again, total speculation. But anyway, uh, she totally reminds me of this friend I knew. The other thing about my friend. Uh, was that she was diagnosed, she was in and out of hospitals, just mm-hmm. like Roseanne Barr. Roseanne Barr has been in and out of hospitals I for, didn't know that. her whole life, yeah, mental wow. hospitals. She's been diagnosed with many things. Like mental illness? Yeah, <laughs> like bipolar, borderline PTSD, dissociative identity disorder, psychosis. And I remember the clinicians had a really hard time pinning it down. They're just oh. like, 
because it's it's a weird situation to have bipolar and borderline. It can happen sometimes, but it's like you usually just have one or the other. Oh, interesting. And so they, but but my friend was diagnosed with with both, all of the above. <laughs> and um, I didn't see any reports of Roseanne being diagnosed with borderline, but she's diagnosed with several, you know, dissociative identity disorder, bipolar, you know, a lot of different things. And so, um, and yet when you look at her, she doesn't really seem to exhibit that kind of thing, you know? Mm, Interesting. Uh, Because bipolar is really quite specific. Mania is a very specific condition that isn't just like, you're going crazy. Like it's, it's very specific, but anyway. So the thing that you know, I bump up against it's like, well, you know, what DSM label does this fit? You know, and the thing that I just resolved to is like, look, not every human being fits easily into the <laughs> into the DSM, right? And my friend didn't, and I don't think Roseanne does either. So, you know, again, it's all a matter of what coping style worked when she was a young child, and I suspect that, she, you know, that she endured a lot of mistreatment growing up. She actually talks about that. And she evaded the mistreatment and gained love and attention by being on stage, by constantly seeking approval. That's another part of the narcissism and histrionic is that you're not just wanting to be on stage, but you like are desperate for approval. And the way that you talked about, you weren't just wanting to be on stage to perform. Like you, a big part of that was like desperation. Tell me I'm legitimate. Yeah. Tell me I'm worth something. Right. You know what I mean? And a bit overblown again, because it's like, who goes to a show and is just like, man, that singer is worth it. He is worthwhile. Well, no, and more than that, like everyone should stand in a line and come up and tell me that and greet me. And- right, right. Um, I, I suspect also that she got a lot of attention for being opinionated as a child, which we'll get into in a second. And also I think she coped with the maltreatment and maybe social issues growing up by not worrying about what other people think about her, Mm. you know, by just being like, I don't care what people think, you know, that that's a very common child thing that I've seen in children that go Mm. through mistreatment. It's like, I don't care what my parents think, you know, they, they adopt that as they absolutely care, but they adopt that facade because it protects them. And I think she has that. And so Growing up, this she has these defenses. It sort of solidifies it. And then, you know, when she's not stressed as an adult, things are fine. And she seems totally stable. And a lot of the interviews I saw, she seemed totally stable. Like yeah. no, nothing abnormal, nothing, you know, strange. Part of the Joe Rogan uh, uh, interview was like that as well. Um, she might have some weird beliefs, but, you know, a lot of people have weird beliefs. Right. Not a big deal. <laughs> but then when she gets stressed out... She regresses to that childhood coping style, uh, which is to be outrageous and right. to be kind of a know-it-all, to be stubborn and to say things like, I don't care what people think and be very cold to people. So I, I think that – I hope that is a is – a, is that a good description of her personality? I think so. I mean it, it seems like from my cursory understanding, it seems right. Now, again, pure speculation based on internet Limited right. internet data. Uh, there are probably people listening to this episode that are that are actual, you know, like Roseanne scholars who have watched <laughs> every interview and, and read her autobiographies. And, you know, yeah. so, uh, you know, who knows? Okay. So let's go through her life and, you know, you can chime in here. So 1952, she's born into a Jewish family, oldest of four children. Her mother... Wait, her, wait, wait. 
But she grew up in Salt Lake City? Right. Right. Jewish oh. family in Salt Lake City. Weird. Uh, her parents were working class, and uh, and one of her grandmothers was actually a devout ortho- Orthodox Jew. By the way, isn't it terrible that the class is called working class? Yeah. Like, you know, like the implication being like, oh, they have to work. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, um, yeah, Salt Lake City... So I'm going to read some passages from her autobiography about her childhood. Um, So when they lived in Salt Lake City, she was seemed like she was pretty close to her mom, and her mom was really afraid of the Mormons, and so (laughs) they would hide their Jewishness. Okay, you know, and she she got Bell's palsy, some kind of some kind of condition on the left side of her face, and it was like numb or like a stroke kind of thing. And she wrote, my mother called in a rabbi to pray for me, but nothing happened. Then my mother got a Mormon preacher. He prayed, and I was miraculously cured. Whoa. Um, so her mother thought this was a sign that they should be Mormon. I see. So when, when my face became healed, mother accepted it as a sign from God that the Mormon faith, faith was the one true religion on the face of the earth and that she and I should join it. But she was afraid of the wrath of her own mother, who was an Orthodox Jew. And so there was a compromise. Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, I was a Jew. Sunday <laughs> afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, and Wednesday afternoon, we were Mormons. What? So after I learned about my people being murdered in every country but America, she's talking about Jewish people yeah. being murdered everywhere, I could then learn about my new forebears being persecuted in Illinois, New York, and Utah, because <laughs> right. Mormons were persecuted. And this made me... This made for me a complete and well-rounded feeling of paranoia. Oh, wow. So she's joking about it, but I think that that is abusive. She is, at this point, she's a young child. She's like three, four, five years old. She's internalizing these notions that her people are being... So she's writing that she knew that as a young child. Yeah. You know, that she knew that her people were being killed and persecuted, Mormons and Jewish, you know? And And from all sides. And... And, you know, sort of being asked to split um, between two faiths and two realities. You right. Know? She said that her father sexually abused her early when Roseanne was younger. And then more recently, she, she said that he didn't sexually abuse her. He emotionally abused her. So wow. I, I don't know the story on that. You know, like if she, I don't know how she was convinced for so long yeah. that she was being sexually abused by her dad and then later to say no. You know, I don't really know the story on that. But again, that's some of that hinting of histrionic. So if, so I don't know, a complete speculation, but I've seen this before. You're, you're 30 years old and you feel, you know, upset. You know, yeah. you're, you're just, you're kind of unstable. You have some emotional issues, mood issues. And you know that your dad was emotionally abusive and distant and not a good person. You have bad memories about him. And you have bad memories about him. And then, and then someone comes along and says, like, you know, you might have been sexually abused. Right. And you're like, yeah, you know, that fits right. That fits. Yeah. And you don't really go down the road of really kind of making sure. And you're like, yeah, I kind of remember this and that. And then, you, and then without thinking about it much, you just start telling everyone right. he sexually abused you. Um. I have no idea if this is Roseanne's case, yeah. but I have seen histrionic people do that before wow. because it it serves them, right? It's like, it's much more attention getting to say I was sexually abused than I was emotionally abused. Mm. Um, now, 
people are actually sexually abused all the time. And it could be Roseanne. I don't know, but um, it's just one thing to think about. Um, I mean, especially the fact that in more recent interviews, she's saying, no, 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 he never sexually abused. I know I said that before, but he never sexually abused me. It's like, how could that come out now? That could be part of our dissociative identity disorder as well. Cause sure. You can get kind of messed up about details. So it could way. go either way there. Like he totally could have. And now, now she's like, no, or right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so here's where sh- the narcissism and histrionic really become solidified. So age eight, she, you know, and this sounds just so weird to me that she gave speeches for youth at Mormon churches around Utah. That sounds right though. Like, you know, in, in, in a lot of uh, these hardcore religious communities, they incentivize the kids to get involved. And if they find a kid that speaks well, they leverage the hell out of them. Eight? Yeah. There's all these videos on YouTube of little young preachers that, like, imitate, like, the big fiery pe- preachers and stuff like that. And they are so beloved by their communities. Wow. And uh, I remember even one clip of... One of those Maury Povich or one of those shows where they had one of those kids on and, you know, the host was trying to say, like, do you really understand what you're even talking about? Because this kid just like, you know, in the fire, in the brims, you know, like this kind of thing. Uh, so I, I think it's a trope. Like you, you find these these communities that, you know, they, they value a preacher. Uh, they have a strong religious community. And then if you find, and they incentivize youth participation. And if you're a charismatic young one and can speak that same truth, then everyone, all the adults can go like, whoa, that's, that's great, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I, and as you talk about it, I'm reminded of other depictions or other yeah. personalities I've seen. And, and I, I think part of the reason why it's so compelling to the community that believes in whatever the kid is saying yeah. is that it feels more pure. Yeah. You know, if an eight year old is saying, you know, the same things, it seems like, well, it, it feels like it must be coming from God because right. an eight year old couldn't come up with that themselves. Right. Especially must, an extra eloquent eight year old or whatever. Yeah. They must be yeah. channeling totally. God, you know? Totally. Um, so, yeah, so she started doing that, yeah. and she gave it, you know, she traveled all around Utah. So imagine that. You're mistreated. You're terrified of persecution to Jews right. and Mormons. Uh, you have low self-esteem. I, I don't know if she, you know, she might have been overweight during that time. I'm not sure. I also heard that she has some Native American in her blood, and so she, she had, you know, slanty eyes, so to speak. And okay. Anyway, you're, you're mistreated. You have, low, you have low self-worth, and all of a sudden, the Mormon church is— you know, taking you all all over Utah at the age of eight. Yeah. And there are droves of kids going, she is awesome. And you're standing on stage and and you're spouting Mormon stuff. You know, you're just like Mormon, this Mormon, that Mormon, that, and people love you. And then she got elected to president of the Mormon youth group in Utah. Man. Then she started giving speeches to adults not right. just to other kids. And she wrote, I thank God for helping my mother to find the true church. And even though all of my ancestors were murdered recently, I still know that this is the true religion of God on earth. I don't know what she wow. meant. Wow. <laughs> like, meaning that the Jews had been murdered in World War Two. Yeah. And then she says, I was the darling of the Mormon hour. As everyone was just so very excited by the blessing of a member of the house of Judah not going 
to have to spend all of eternity in hell. I was quite – so I guess you yeah. would say I'm a Jew who converted to Mormonism. So I don't have to go to hell. Yeah. I was quite pleased about it myself, feeling extremely superior to those other lost people of Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, Buddhism, Islamic, Muslim, socialists, and the Sikh belief systems who were all unfortunately and most certainly doomed. So again, that's a, a narcissistic thing. I'm standing on stage. I'm the voice of Mormonism, and all those other people are going to hell. They're they're all doomed. You know, it's a it it sets up an interesting mindset yep. that, if solidified, can look kind of weird when you're an adult. You know, one thing we we've I don't think we've ever talked about is so imagine the pressure. So if a child firmly, fully believes that there is a hell and there's a heaven right? Such that the hell they believe in is literally the eternal damnation kind of hell, right? Yeah. Okay. Now imagine that child has a close relative, let's say a dad, who is an atheist. Yeah, or doesn't go to church. Right? And so imagine the pressure that child would feel to somehow save that parent. Yeah. That was what I felt about my dad. Because in my mind, all the way till, I don't know, my mid-20s or something, I was always like, how do I save him? Maybe if I could just give the right speech. Maybe if I could just, you know, I just, I have to be able to save his soul. And But I started as a little kid feeling that way, you know, like, oh my gosh, my dad's going to hell. Right. That puts a lot of stress. Yeah. You know, let's, let's make a different analogy. Let's say that you live in a war-torn country and your father is a sergeant in the military. Yeah. And every time he walks out the door, you're worried he's going to get killed legitimately by right. some, you know, some conflict. That's going to put stress on you. That's going to have a traumatic effect on you. Yeah. That's the same yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. You're taught a uh, and as a child, you don't really have the ability to kind of think, well, you know, maybe God has a different plan right, right, or, right. you know, you're a black and white thinker, yeah. you know. This this person's going to for eternity going to be burning in hell. Yeah. And how much how much stress that would put on you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so fast forward to her teenage years, uh, she was hospitalized for the first time, age fourteen. Wow, for nine months. What? Yeah. Okay, that's serious. Right. So she, I don't know what it was for. I suspect it must have been for suicide. Nine months. Yeah, nine months. That sounds like pregnancy. Uh, so. And she had been hospitalized, you know, several times after that as well. Uh, 1969, age 16, she writes, I remember at the age of 16, I was in school skimming through a medical journal. Miraculously, the book just opened up to the page on Bell's palsy, which was the name of the disease which had led me, uh, led me into what turned out to be 10 years of the Mormon lifestyle. So, you know, yeah. remember she had that Bell's palsy, the Jewish, you know, guy came over, tried to fix her, didn't work, and then the Mormon guy came over, prayed, and fixed her. Fixed. Um, and she says that that completely shifted my life into the Mormon lifestyle. So she right. was totally in the Mormon thing. The information in the journal stated that Bill's palsy was a temporary paralysis, usually lasting only forty-eight hours. Uh-huh. I only remember. I only remember that I went just a wee bit mad and started laughing and screaming at the same time. That very afternoon, I drank beer, smoked two cigarettes, tried to purchase drugs, and begged Eddie to go 
to go with me down to a ravine and fuck my brains out. As a member of the church, he declined in a manner rather like blind panic, (laughs) probably thinking that I was possessed by Satan himself. Then later that evening, he called me at home to inquire about if I was okay and could we still do it. (laughs) I told him, as I have told them all, honey, you never get a second chance. So uh, this kind of illuminates her funny way of writing. But, you know, if you really look at this, she... She is terrified by this condition of her face going numb. Right. Her mother is a Orthodox Jewish person, thinks, you know, God is involved somehow. Jewish God doesn't help. Mormon God helps. Throws him into this, hours later. <laughs> into this into this totally, you know, bifurcated life of Mormonism and secret Jew you know, because she's still three days a week Jewish. And her dad was presumably completely Jewish. Right. She becomes like a famous Poster child, literally. <laughs> yeah, famous uh, right. Mormon youth for ten years in Utah. She comes across this medical journal, and it's like through. I mean, because you, I bet you know, in her speaking around Utah, she's like, "The Mormon God saved my face." Right. You know, a Mormon man uh, prayed over me, and God saved me, yeah. and that's what you know. I was. I was like Paul with, you know, the scales falling from Saul with the, you yeah. know, the, the scales falling from my eyes. And then all of a sudden she reads this journal and she's like, it would have gone away regardless. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is a lie that, you know, what else is a lie? Right. And because of everything that's pent up inside of her of rebellion and anger and mistreatment and, you know, worthlessness of being abused and mistreated and injected with lots of scary things... She says, I went a wee bit crazy, and I started laughing and screaming at the same time. And I ran away and drank beer and smoked cigarettes and tried to get drugs, and I you know, begged a guy to you know, go down to a ravine and, quote-unquote, fuck my brains out. So you know, that's an interesting response. You right. know? It's not like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, this is someone who has issues right, yeah. that are being tamped down temporarily by very thin uh, yeah. thin barriers. Yeah, the dam is not strong. <laughs> right. There's a lot of pressure down there of worthlessness and anger and rage, probably. Right. And a thin veil of, of Mormonism was just barely holding it down. And then that burst and, like, everything came out. Uh, later that year, she was hit by a car and she had a traumatic brain injury. Wait, what? Yeah. And oh God. And uh again, this is the pattern. So, you know, the woman I knew twenty years ago very well. Yeah. She had it was a very similar story. It was like oh my gosh. everything bad that could happen to someone did happen to her. That's and, incredible. And you know, it's hard to know if it could be bad luck, but I think it's also just like when you are self-sabotaging and histrionic, you kind of put yourself in a lot of dangerous situations. You don't watch what who's coming down the road and you just cross the street. Yeah. Um, and they said, I don't know, you know, the actual, it was reported that after the brain injury, her behavior changed. So it's like, is that a factor in her issues? But again, we don't need to look to that to, as the sole reason. As There to, were already a lot of clues. Yeah. I did hear that, though. I, I didn't remember that. I had heard that she had had some sort of car accident or something and that, that had affected her. Yeah. 
Um, while she was in the hospital, I, I don't know if it was for this one uh, or the last one, but she had a baby and it was put up for adoption. So that's a wow. pretty that's a pretty big trauma, you know. Wait a minute, I was joking about the pregnancy thing. I know, but yeah. So that's a pretty big trauma. You're a young woman, a teenager. You are pregnant. Yeah. That's a big deal for nine months, and then you give birth, and then the the baby just goes away. You know yeah. that that's going to take a toll. Uh, she moved out. She became a stand up comedian. Fast forward to when she's in her thirties. She's on the Johnny Carson show, then she's on Letterman, and then she was, you know, she's starting to become kind of a known yeah. woman stand-up comic, and her whole thing was the domestic goddess thing. What was that? Uh, she was, you know, her stand-up comedy was, the, her shtick was that she was a, a housewife who would make fun, it was like her Roseanne character I on see. the TV show. Okay. She would make fun of men, and she would talk about how crappy her life was because uh, you know, it was it was that kind of shtick. So that led to the Roseanne, right? So the Roseanne uh, TV show was at, at least you know partially based on her stand-up okay. act. But before she was on Roseanne, she was offered. Do you know what TV show, major TV show of the time role she was offered? Which makes total sense to me. Uh, Roseanne, major TV show. Late uh, late 80s. Oh, like uh, the grow, growing, what is it? Um, no, it's the a... The Facts of Life? Or? No, it's a similar show to Roseanne in a lot of ways. Oh, oh another family show. Yeah. Like Family Matters or... No. Uh, growing Pains. Married with Children. Married with Children, of course. So I don't know if that's false but i read that she was offered that would have been totally wrong but that would well yeah it would have been different yeah very different uh but interesting to think about you know but because she would have dominated the uh you know she would have sort of dominated the scene uh yeah but think about roseanne bar and uh what's his face al you know Ow. going head to head like yeah. it could have been an interesting show although Peg Bundy was you know she was perfect she's iconic and she's the voice of yeah. uh, uh, Futurama, Futurama but, yeah. um, but she turned it down like yeah. which is interesting yeah you know she 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 was offered it and she's like no and then she Maybe did she it. wanted her own thing I th- yeah I think that's part of it she did an HBO special and she got an award for that uh, then uh, in 1988, the, Cos- the Cosby Show executive producers wanted to make a sitcom about a working class family. Oh, there you go. So this is interesting, right? Because they have a black rich family. Right. Now they're like, oh, we want a white, white working, working class, class family. Yeah. So uh, it it aired in the in late 1988. And um, how how long do you think it took for this show to become popular, Roseanne? Um, I feel like it was popular by the time I was here. So at least no more than two years, maybe just one year. Uh, right away, it was an insta okay. hit. Like from yeah. episode one, it was essentially, it, it was a huge... I'm not surprised. I, yeah. The, like I moved up at uh, September 1990. Oh, no, wait. But even before that, I had been for vacation in probably 88. But I feel like I didn't really watch it till I had moved up here. And it was huge. Like 1990, it was very huge. I didn't really watch it so that much. I was, you know, 17 at the time and wasn't really watching TV. It's sort of a black hole for me. And so, you know, it it wasn't really on my radar. The Cosby Show I watched because it was already on for a few years at that point. So first season, it 
rocketed up to number two behind which show? Number two behind The Cosby Show. Right, behind The Cosby Show. Um, what do you remember about this show? Uh, so uh, John Goodman was, I, I really loved him. He was probably my second favorite character. Um, so, you know, he, it was her, him, their two daughters, and her sister. and The son. Uh, that was later. No, it was right away. Really? Yeah. Okay. There, there's, he was a little boy. He wasn't, okay. in, he wasn't involved much. I barely remember him. But um, I recently watched the first episode, so or today I watched the first episode. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, man, I, I'd spaced on that. So you know, a lot of it was about you know the girls having trouble in school or uh, job problems, and the you know Roseanne and John Goodman, they would have arguments, but it was always uh, they they had like a dynamic that worked because like they would they would like resolve them, you know, and like mm-hmm. they would work through them, and so there was never any like really re-traumatizing kind of scenes between their domestic uh, interactions. Um, and I always liked the the John Goodman character because he always seemed kind of like a little more grounded, even though they, you know, it was clear they didn't have a lot of money. Like he was kind of like uh, make do, like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So, he was more of like the straight person. Like yeah. he was the Marge and she was the... She was the, you know, and, and the that's Homer. the thing. They didn't treat him as an idiot. Yeah, that actually stood out a little bit because um, compared to some of the other sitcoms at the time, and certainly The Simpsons and stuff, like the the guy was sort of like the the idiot character. John Goodman wasn't portrayed that way at all. Yeah, and I like yeah. your description of their romance or their relationship. Yeah. You know, they were very, uh, you know, they would joke around a lot with each right. other. They would mess with each other. That's you know, right. Yeah. She would say like, I want a divorce or something. Yeah. And he'd be like, fine, let's do it. But they would very quickly be very sweet to each yes. other. Yeah. You know, um, did you like the show? I back? did. I really did enjoy it. Um, I don't know how far into my years I ended up watching it. Cause I didn't watch it all the way to the end, for example. Uh, but I, there was a, a few years where I was watching it I enjoyed the show. I, I, I felt it, like I said, very human, very real world kind of things. I really had, like I said, a little crush on the blonde girl. And I just, I don't know, I could relate to it, you know? Yeah, it was, for you younger listeners who might not have been around then, it was a very different show for the time. Yeah. Since then, there have been many shows like it. But at the time, it was... I mean, there had been shows like it before, which we'll get into, but I just want to go over the shows that were pop, the popular. The sitcom w- was the popular form sure. of the time. Like, you know, it, this is where Friends emerged out of and, this, and Seinfeld. And, yeah. you know, you got a long string of these kind of shows, Happy Days. And so um, what other uh, sitcoms were on the air on 1988. And all of these were gigantic shows. Yeah. Every one of these. Right. So again, we said Cosby show. Um, so I don't remember the years, but here, you know, there was, uh, Webster, there was, uh, um, different strokes. Yeah. There was, uh, growing pains. Yeah. There was the one with Urkel. Maybe that was a little after 88. A little after. Yeah. Um, Oh, uh, man, what else was there? Silver Spoons. Silver Spoons, which I never watched that one. but I like that one. Uh, and then the one I, like, uh, 
I don't care what you say anymore. Oh, Is Bosom it? Buddies. Bosom that was buddies. that was off the air by then. Oh, okay. That 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 had a short run actually. Okay. With Tom Hanks. Um, what about uh, the Facts of Life? Facts of Life. I, lo- I loved the facts of life when yeah. I was a kid. I learned about the facts of life from watching the facts of life. Um, Alf. Alf, right. Family Ties. Yeah. Golden Girls. Oh, I didn't mention Family Ties because I didn't know if it was still on. Yeah. So Family Ties was one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Family Ties, they were probably in the years when they had the cute little kid. Like uh, I was no longer watching yeah. at that point. Um, who's the Boss. The Jeffersons. Who's the boss? That was another favorite show of mine. Mark and Mindy. Yeah. Well, that one was that one still on? That wasn't still on. I think so. Maybe not. WKRP. I I don't know yeah. if that was still on, but I think I'm just naming 80s. Yeah. Um. So now the some people will say, and I think Roseanne Barr will say on her website that you know this was mind blowing because it was the very first working class family sitcom, which is not true. What other working class sitcoms came before her show? Well, I mean, it's just so Family Ties doesn't count. They weren't rich. They were rich. Rich? I mean, not rich, but they were at least middle class. So that's not working class? No. Oh, my gosh. Working class is like construction. You know, he was a construction worker who wasn't always getting jobs. And so sometimes he didn't. And like in the first episode, he... You know, in the morning, Roseanne's like, "What are you doing today?" And he's like, okay. "He's like, well, I got this guy. He might he might have a job for me with construction." Oh, okay, okay, okay. She she goes to work at like a a factory. I see. So working she, class means sometimes working class because you can't get a job. No, it means <laughs> I know. I'm kidding. Low paying job. Yeah. She comes home and he's drinking beer, and she's like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, and I he's like, this. "He's like, <laughs> oh well, you know, I would I looked for a job." He's like. What in a six pack? You know, yeah. so you know, yeah. That that was you know. But okay, other I, other I see what you're class. saying. I I guess I have a distorted. You know what it is? I know what it is. The working class in this country definitely seemed like the middle class in Colombia. Right. <laughs> All right. So I don't know then, because everything I can think of, like different strokes, he's like rich. Well, I'm talking Webster, about like rich. before. So we're talking early '80s, '70s, even going the back. Flintstones. Yeah, exactly. That's one. Okay. Flintstones is they uh, were honeymooners. Like, honeymooners, absolutely. That was the very first. Okay. Um, uh, Archie Bunker. All in the family. All in the family. Uh, in all uh, the, this, all- the the spinoff uh, Jeffersons. Jeffersons. Absolutely. Well, actually, Jeffersons. They weren't working class. They oh. were they, moving on up to the top. Oh, that, I don't know that great apartment in the sky. They were. Okay. You know, he he had a good job. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, so wait, was that the spinoff of Archie Bunker? Um, it might have the... been. It might have been. Okay. Oh no no Sanford and Son. Well, what about that one? Yep, that's working class. Obviously, okay. they there was a right? junkyard. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but class wasn't that much a part of that show, okay. if I remember right. Yeah. So you're getting a lot. Laverne and Shirley. Good. Laverne and Shirley. Rest in peace, Penny Marshall. Okay. Uh, Chico and the Man. Good times. Good times. Alice. She worked at a diner. Taxi. Okay. Uh, Fat Albert. And, hey, hey, hey. and married with children. So, so those are all working yeah. class shows. But there was something about Roseanne that was particularly highlighting of the working class nature. Sure. It was a frequent theme yeah, yeah. and it was almost like a political statement yeah. on, on the show. Um, well, and I, I would say uh, you cannot ignore the fact that in a lot of those other shows, the actors and actresses looked like people on TV 
Whereas in Roseanne, right. they looked a little more normal and, and, and like you looked around the country and you're like, oh yeah, that looks like my neighbors and stuff like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and other working class sitcoms have come after, like what? Uh, the Simpsons. Yeah. Did I already say The Simpsons? Yeah. Um, family Guy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He, he works he... at a beer company and oh, gets yes? fired many times over. And... Does she work though? No. Okay. No. They don't seem working class to me, but okay. Yeah, whatever. Uh, working class sitcoms. Um, I don't know. King of the Hill? Sure, yes. King of the Hill. Yeah. King of Queens? I never saw that. Bob's Burgers? Everybody loves Raymond. No? I don't no, think so. Superstore, which I love. So I Superstore is about, it's like a Target, okay. you know, department store, and it's called Cloud Nine. Okay. And it's all about the workers. Oh, okay. And there are, you know, episodes where, you know, their lack of money is an issue. It's an issue. You know, like this is like, okay. I can't afford that. Um, and Atlanta is also working class. So what's the cultural importance of that of Roseanne and its legacy. What do you think, Bruno? I, I mean, I do think that even at the time there was the sense like, okay, this show, this show's not as polished and as TV as other shows. And that's relatable. I remember that. Uh, so I think that in some ways, uh, sort of a precursor to reality TV, you know, like it wasn't reality TV. It was scripted, but you could then see like, oh, it's okay to see like everyday yeah. people in everyday situations. Yeah, and Roseanne was a massive part of that. Like yeah. the way she acts in the show seems so genuine. Yeah. Even compared to John Goodman, I would yeah. say. It feels so real. Like when she laughs or smiles or right. has a smirk, you feel like she is genuinely feeling those feelings. Right. So yeah, that was a big deal of it. In fact, her laugh was part of the... Uh, Intro. Yeah, the intro. Yeah. yeah. Even that intro, like, yeah. I think John Goodman improved. He comes up around from behind her and uh -huh. kind of puts his face in her face. <laughs> and then she's sort of surprised and, like, pushes his face <laughs> away. And I think that, you know, that was all just kind of off the cuff. When this was at a time when sitcoms were strictly by the script. Right. And they didn't have the big rock singer singing the theme song, you know. Yeah. Everywhere you look, da da dee da da. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it's a blues song. You yeah. Know? Like you're down on your luck. Yeah. I. You know. I. If you would, uh, when I first started going into this episode prep, I was like, yeah, you know, Roseanne is just one of those shows. But I think that's a product of the fact that I was a little, I was in that age zone when I wasn't really watching yeah. TV and wasn't really paying attention to something. But when I actually look into it. I think it had a, a pretty big cultural importance. I think it's less so than what's on Roseanne Barr's blog that describes, but I think yeah. it's I think it's a pretty big deal. And because other shows about working class families, you know, they had existed before, but I don't think any of them had really made you know messy working class families feel heroic. Yeah, like this family was messy. The house was messy. They dressed messy. Yep. They looked messy. Yep. Uh, you know the the casting of the of especially that middle child, the girl. You know, yeah. she has a messy way of talking. Her yeah. hair is messy. That's what I'm saying. These people didn't look like normal TV stars, right? And they looked like they were plucked out of regular life. Yeah. You know, in some ways, and it 
it still made it heroic. It it felt, I mean, heroic is kind of a funny word, but it felt like these are good people. They have integrity. They have honor, and and also um, it it sort of attacked a lot of political issues. You know, like how hard it is to find work. Yeah. Uh, how hard it is to be a parent and work because you know right. both the parents worked and and they're you know in the first episode she's called into school and the teacher is like you know your kid is slipping grades a little bit are you spending quality time with him you know and there's a beat and and Roseanne's <laughs> like um, so we both wor- I don't know she says yeah. some joke but we both work. And we have a lot of kids, so where's the room for that? Right. You know, and and the teachers, you know, you can t- she's sort of cast as this privileged. Right. She probably doesn't even have kids, kind yeah. of a thing. And so, you know, it went after a lot of things like that. Um, the episodes went into how small things can totally ruin you financially. Yeah. Like in the first episode, the oldest girl, the girl you had a crush on, her school bag had something wrong with it, and the parents have a conversation about like, well, what are we going to do about this? Right. You know, middle-class people, they just buy another bag. Yeah. I I remember that. (laughs) I remember that, that actual episode. Um, by the way, she, I think she reminded me of Elizabeth shoe. Interesting. Oh, the, the sister. That's why I encourage you to look at pictures of her, uh, again and tell me that, uh, again, because, um, she looks kind of goofy in my eyes. I'm sure she does, but at the time, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Um, I've the the characters are proud but humble on the show. It seems they're assertive, you know, but loving with each yeah, other. Yeah. Um, uh, it's kind of revolutionary to have, uh, you know, plus size main characters. Totally. You know, I mean, they weren't just kind of plus size. No, they were big. Yeah, they were. They were know. Disneyland McDonald's. <laughs> um. They, it's sort of a feminist show. You know, Roseanne had a lot of power in that household yeah. without it being, like, diminishing to the to the husband. Um, it was focused on her, you know. It was, and that, that's part of what I was saying earlier, which is that is incredible because they managed to have such a strong female presence and not turn the guy into the blubbering fool. Right. And it came at a time, which I do remember very vividly, that... The '80s excesses were coming to an end. You yeah, know? Uh, you know it, that this was it was sort of like a- awakening for America of like, okay, we've tricked ourselves into believing that we're all rich and famous. Yeah, and like you know Patrick Bateman, and really most of us are like this. And there was sort of a decline in the economy and stuff, and yeah, so it it sort of coincided with that kind of thing. Um, during the first season, she fought with the producer. She wanted more control and she boycotted shows. And there were, there were episodes where she was actually just written out of the show because (laughs) she, she wouldn't show. She's like, I'm I'm not coming this week. You know what I mean? What? Yeah. And she got into a fight with ABC and ABC actually gave in and actually fired the producer. She wanted the producer gone. She hated, she hated the producer. It was, it was basically a, a fight over control over the, the you know the show, the show. you know and, and the producer's like this is my show and I hired you yeah. to be on my show and she's and, like the show's called Roseanne yeah and she was claiming that the show was completely based on her uh, her stand up routine right she's like you stole all my stuff yeah you know so this is this is me 
and ABC actually gave in. So this is another kind of that this could have ruined her career. Like the producer, the producer could have just thrown up his hands and be like, well, let's just close the whole thing down. This isn't working. Um, But it was already making money. It had her name. She was the star. I mean, but she rolled the dice. Yeah. Just like she rolled the dice with that tweet. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, she, she had the show again. It had good ratings and she had Donald Trump behind her and she rolled the dice and, you know, shot herself in the foot. Different time. (laughs) Do you know, the famous writers of Roseanne? No. I had no idea. Oh, my God. Joss Wheaton. No. Was a major... What? This is, I think, where he got his... This is where he got his start. That's incredible. And I think Roseanne was sort of critical in actually giving Joss Wheaton this this gig. Wow. So without this show, Joss Wheaton might have been well, like yeah. a car salesman. <clears throat> yeah. The other uh, is Amy Sherman Palladino. Do you know who what, this is? No, who's that? Gilmore Girls. Oh, okay. The Marvelous Mrs. Maple, Maisel. Okay. You know, the one that won all the Golden yeah, yeah. Globes and blah, blah, blah. I like Emmys. that show. Yeah. Um, you know, for those who don't know Joss Wheaton, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He co-wrote Toy, Toy Story, Firefly the TV show, which is great. Uh, Serenity, The Cabin in the Woods, Avengers Age of Ultron, Justice League. You know, we'll forgive him for Justice League, but <laughs> um, like and Justice many League. other things. How many se- seasons was Roseanne on for? See, that's what's confusing because in my mind, not that many because I only watched it like for the years I was in high school. Once I went to college, I don't think I kept watching it. But So I'm going to go with seven. Nine. That's pretty good. Okay. From 88 to 97, which is really surprising to me because it's like it was on all the way up until 97. Yeah, that is surprising. She won an Emmy and a Golden Globe for her work there. Uh, for the final two seasons, she earned $40 million. Whoa! She was the second highest paid woman in show business at the time behind, who do you think? Uh, famous, oh, Oprah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she was in a movie in 19, so going back to 1989, so this is right after the first season. Yeah. She was in a movie. Do you know what movies, major movies she was in, in during this during this era? Man, I know I watched it. I'm sure. I don't remember, though. She-Devil with Mer- Meryl Streep. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert uh, gave her a positive review, saying, Barr could have made an easy, predictable, and dumb comedy at any point in the last couple of years. Instead, she took her chances with an ambitious project, a real movie, and it pays off in that Barr demonstrates that there is a core of reality inside her TV persona, a core of human, identifiable human feelings like jealousy and pride, and they provide a sound foundation yep. for her comic acting. Yeah, that was, um, that was good. She published a book at this time, an autobiography, and then she was in Look Who's Talking 2. <laughs> so there were two kids. It was Bruce Willis and Roseanne Barr. And John Travolta and Christy Alley were the parents. Oh, my gosh. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I watched both. Yeah, I, I definitely watched the first one. I, I bet you I watched the second one. Uh, 1990, this is when she sang the Star Spangled Banner, which you talked about before. That was 1990? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was later. Right. Uh, she started to sing, and people started booing, and then at the end, she kind of grabbed her crotch, and she spat on the ground. I mean, she would, but she, from the very beginning, she was like, oh, say, can't you? Like, it was super abrasive and awful. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a huge backlash, like everyone hated her. Yeah. Everyone. President Bush, the uh, you know, the first HW, called it disgraceful. Right. I mean, that's pretty, for George, you know, Bush Sr. to comment on yeah. pop, pop culture. 
uh, is a pretty big deal. Uh, later, her husband, Tom Arnold, said that uh, the crotch grab and the spitting on the ground was to imitate baseball players. Well, yeah. I assumed so. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. They I do did that it. all the time. I thought she was... Saying, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought she was doing a baseball spit. Oh. But, so, later in an interview, she said that she was singing as loudly as possible. So, here's where we get into the pattern of self-destruction that she involves in. So, she makes a mistake, and instead of just apologizing, she makes excuses. And this is where that personality problem comes into play. So I'm sure after this, she had publicists or producers or someone coming forward to her and saying, you got to apologize for this. Like, just say, I'm sorry, or, you know, like go, you know, fall on your sword, something. But she doesn't, you know, she's like, look, I was singing as loudly as possible to hear myself over the public address system. So, you know, just by accident, my singing sounded screechy. I'm totally going to defend her on this, though, because, like, first of all, who hired her to do the fucking, like, it's ridiculous. Was she known as a singer? Did anyone think that her voice was going to be some beautiful angelic thing? Well, okay, but which in a a later interview, she did say that. She said that, you know, the Padres hired her and suggested that she bring humor to the song, which I find to just be a horrific idea. It's a terrible idea. But, but I knew someone put her up to it. But she said that in a later interview. So it's like, why didn't she say that right away? Why didn't she be like, look, that's what they hired me to do. So I'm sorry. She might have been not trying to throw them under. The, I don't know. I doubt it. Like her first excuse was it, it accidentally sounded screechy. Okay. Now, fast forward to 2012. She gives another interview. And, she's, and I watched this one. She's like, look. The night before, I was practicing it, and I wanted to sing it well. And, you know, I, I practiced it all night long. And, you know, I'm not a great singer, but I thought I was doing okay. And then when I got the microphone and I started singing, I realized that I was singing too high. And I realized it wasn't going well. So I said to myself, what the hell? I'm a comic. I'm, I'm just going to make it funny. And um, I, I went totally I, relate. I went from a beloved person to a despised and hated person overnight. No, listen, I am so on our corner on this. I can totally relate, number one, to performing stuff started going south and you try to do the best you can with it. Number two, she's not a singer. I mean, like, just don't ask her to do this then. Number three, people are way too precious about freaking national anthems. So you know what? I'm on her corner on this. But why grab your crotch and Because spit? baseball players, pitchers particularly, are stereotypically doing that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, more, I'm, you know, I'm sort of in the middle on this. So originally I was just like, I don't think I cared back then in 1990, but, you know, upon watching it, I'm like, yeah, I could see why sensitive 1990 America would, yeah. would be a little sensitive about this. Um, but then when I actually watched it, and I heard her explanation. I was like, yeah, that is kind of weird. It's like, why would you hire her? Right. You know she has a terrible voice. Like, yeah. you, you've heard her talk. You, yeah. You know. Um, she didn't really make fun of the song. She just sang it with her regular annoying voice, yeah. you know? But, and by the way, at the time, I remember being against her on this. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm young, and I'm just going along with the flow. And it did sound like shit. So this, but this is a narcissistic histrionic shooting yourself in the foot. A 
a you know non narcissistic non histrionic yeah. person who was a comedian with a terrible voice who was known for disrespect if asked to sing the national anthem would be like no no yeah I, I'm not going to do it yes. but because she can't help it right. she she does mm-hmm. that and then uh, she was devastated by that yeah you know it 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 was she it was unexpected to her you know because the thing to America in 1990 they thought she went up there as a big F you to America, which was probably not the case. Well, and this must have been disappointing to her also from the perspective that she actually stood for middle America and for a lot of the, like you said, the working class because of her show. And so she probably had, she probably was happy that that was something that she was respected for, you know, and that those, those groups of people loved her for that. And so then for that same groups of people to turn against her, that probably was hurtful. Right. Yeah. Did you know that she was host of Saturday Night Live three times during, oh. during this time? I guess I'm not surprised, but I did not know that. I didn't. That's, I mean, that just tells you how big of a star yeah. she was, you know, yeah. and how respected she was yeah. as a comedian. Totally. Uh, she released another book. She hosted the MTV Music Video Awards. Okay. Again, just to let you know, like, so I missed all this stuff, uh, <laughs> but... It's just like, man, she was a massive, the NTV video, I mean, to choose her. Right. You know, that's, that's interesting. Uh, 1998, she had her own talk show called the Roseanne show. Did you know about this? I do. I never watched it. It was like Johnny Carson, right? And it ran for two years. Two years. Yeah, which is, you know, kind of big. Okay. Uh, 2000, she started her blog, Roseanne World, which is still there. Um, there hasn't been much since the tweet, though. <laughs> like, there hasn't been any update. <laughs> but Roseanne World is where all those descriptions are that you were saying. <laughs> right. Um, she returned to comedy, another HBO special. She started doing a, a, a political radio show in 2008. Oh, really? Uh, 2009, she did the Adolf Hitler feature. Have you seen this? No. So, do you know there's a, a Jewish magazine called Hebe Magazine? Uh, yes. It's sort of a comedy or whatever. Yeah. And so they will often feature a Jewish person on the cover in a funny way. And she, so they're like, you know, come over, we'll do a, we'll do a photo shot shot for the cover. Yeah. And she's like, okay, I'm going to dress up as Hitler. Oh boy. So she dressed up and it's a pretty good, you know, costume and hit and and Hitler impression. And she is in the kitchen and she has a swastika on her arm and she's pulling out a rack of cookies, and they're a bunch of uh, burnt gingerbread man. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Who, who allowed this to go out? Right. So, again, huge backlash. So- I mean, just because you're of that group of people doesn't entitle you to everything in the sense of humor. Right. Right. Wow. So huge backlash. Uh, the View spoke out against her. O'Reilly. So people on the right and the left were speaking out against yeah. her for this. Um, she defended it, and actually the magazine defended it. The magazine said it wasn't our idea; it was hers. But they were like, "Look, it's satire. You know, we're we're a Jewish magazine." <laughs> like, but what? Yeah, no, I know. And but but it almost like if you're gonna defend something so extreme, I want to know what's the satire. What is the point? Uh, she was she was trying to make fun of Hitler by feminizing him. I think like she's 
because she's like the domestic goddess, right? So she was combining, she was making Hitler into a woman in the kitchen who burns gingerbread in the right. oven. I mean, yeah. Now, what I will say to this is that it's clear why the public was bothered, particularly if a lot of people didn't know she was Jewish, and particularly if a lot of people didn't know the magazine was a Jewish magazine. You know, sure. I think if you're like, it's a Jewish magazine. And she's a Jew, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it, it, but, but, you know, it doesn't quote unquote justify it, so to speak, you know, but it, it is. And the other thing is, is that I would suspect that a lot of, so, so other magazine covers had similar, you know, satire that would be offensive, Yeah, but they weren't called out on it. I don't think it was at the level of this one, Yeah, but it's not like this just comes out of nowhere. It's sure. like they had made a string of offensive yeah. Jewish, you know, covers up. You I know. see. So, you know, I, I still think it was a gaffe, you know yeah. what I mean? But Well, if, if nothing else, it's like, well, just know that by doing this, you are continuing your streak of unlikableness with several de- several demographics. Right, exactly. Well, and of, again, shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. Another person would have said, eh, you know. yeah maybe just the Hitler. Like if she just did the Hitler thing, I think that would have been fine. But pulling out people dead, you know, right. burnt things out of the oven. Yeah. Like, wow. Well, that that's my, my question. That's my point slash question about the satire piece because it like it actually, okay, I could see it. The cover has her in this very feminized pose, but she looks like Hitler and it's like one little finger in her mouth and she's perking her lips. Okay, that's that's totally offensive to Hitler and like whatever. But that would make more sense than like she's pulling burnt things out of an oven. Like, right. like what? It, <sighs> yeah, it makes it look like she thinks it's funny. It's funny, right? That people were burnt. Yeah, I get it. But yeah. they're just ginger. Like, it's fine. Yeah. Like, that's that's where I'm like, I lose the satire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'd be like, for me, as a Japanese person, on the cover of a Japanese-American magazine, you know, with, uh, you know, me dropping a bomb on yeah. top of something, yeah. you know, it, yeah. and, and there's a bunch of gingerbread man burning. Yes. You know, it's just like, yes, I get what you're getting right. at, but... Man, that is no, just not, not yeah. cool, you know. You could do the same thing with like Native American, uh, you know, uh, genocides and things like that. Like, or, or a black person, you know, with lynching right. themes or something. Right. It's yeah. like, okay, I, even though you're of that race, yes. that doesn't mean it's not, you know, still right. bothersome. Um, again, later in the interview, she doesn't apologize. She, you know, this is that personality right. where it's like early in life she learned, look – I do not accept other people's opinions. Right. You know, my parents are both crazy, abusive people, and I wall up. When, when in doubt, I put a wall up, and I don't let people in. That's how I've survived. Steel or concrete. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she talks about how, uh, you know, she just uh, did that. She started a reality TV show called Roseanne, Roseanne's Nuts, in which her boyfriend and her son... They ran a macadamia nut farm in Hawaii. What? I never heard of this. Which was quickly canceled. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Then she ran for president in 2012 against Obama and Mitt Romney. Uh, What? What? uh, Now, again. I sort of, I mean, I, I do sort of remember. Yeah. But I did think it was sort of not serious. People thought she was joking, but. But when I looked into this, she's clearly uh, serious about it. Especially when you look at, 
you know, she's had a political radio show for four years at this point. Wow. And when you hear her talk today, she is a political person. She's okay. highly political. At the time, she was super left-leaning. Like, yeah. she, was, she was a liberal, liberal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, out of all the candidates, what order was she in the national presidential? Oh, she got voted for? People yeah, voted a lot of people voted for her. Um, uh, how many candidates total? I don't know. That's like 20 or something. I'm not sure. She was number 15. She was six. Whoa. So Obama, 51%. Mitt Romney, 47 Gary Johnson, Libertarian. He always or ekes out a little bit. He got 1%. Jill Stein, she often gets. She was green, yeah. 0.4. Virgil Good, Constitution uh, Party, 0.1. Roseanne Barr, for the Peace and Freedom uh, Party, 0.05, which is something like, I don't know, 70,000 votes or something. So 70,000 people in the United States voted her for her for president. Wow. And I think they were actually kind of serious. You know, I don't think it was a joke thing. Uh, she supported the Occupy Wall Street people. Um, then she had another uh, huge problem where around this time, you remember George Zimmerman shot yeah. Trayvon Martin? Yeah, wasn't she supporting him or something? Or defending him or something? She was on Trayvon Martin's side. Oh, okay. You know, this is when she was a liberal. Okay. And Wait, she, what the hell happened then? Right. In a very short amount of time, like just like two or three years, yeah. she like completely went right wing. Um, she was, uh, she tweeted or retweeted George Zimmerman, Zimmerman parents address, which is where George Zimmerman oh, was staying. Boy. Okay. So someone else had tweeted it and yeah. then she retweeted it, which she has a much bigger platform. Yeah, of course. And she said, she tweeted, if Zimmerman isn't arrested, I'll retweet his address Actually, again. I remember this now. Yes. And then she said, maybe go to his house myself. Oh, man. The parents sued her because they're like, you know, yeah. you ruined our lives. Yeah. Um, but the judge, uh, you know, uh, threw it out because she just retweeted it, one, and two, the address was in the phone book. So, I see. Um, but still, that's yeah. pretty much of it. That's you know, you're ba- you're doxing somebody, yeah, totally, and, and of of an international scandal like yeah. that. Like that's it's a pretty dick yeah. move. Um, she lost the election, and I think she was hurt by it. And she actually at that point took a right turn in terms of her her beliefs. She started defending Donald Trump. Uh, you know, in the 2016. Um, so I wonder how much of it was her turning right or her kind of seeing a lot of herself in Donald Trump right. and being like, well, he's a man of the people too because he's, you know, raised poor. Oh, wait, no, but whatever. But, you know, then like, right. so, you know, defending him. Totally. That, I hadn't thought about it till doing yeah. this, but there, there's a lot of parallels between Roseanne and Donald Trump. Right. You know, they're both, you know, highly controversial, sometimes right. loved figures who have political leanings and are considered ridiculous, you know, and tweet a lot of silly things. And anyway, 2018, this uh, last year, Roseanne, she gets another TV show, uh, uh, number one in the ratings reportedly, a show for middle America. Um, During this time, it's it's a reboot, right? It's, or not a reboot. It's a sequel. It's a sequel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we get to this tweet. Do you remember what she tweeted, the, the controversial tweet last year? I don't remember. Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby. Right. E- equals VJ, standing for Valerie Jarrett. Right, right, right. Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals 
Valerie Jarrett. Wow. Do you know who Valerie Jarrett was? Is? I forget. She was senior advisor to Barack Obama when he was president. Okay. And so after this tweet, there's an instant, humongous backlash. Let I mean, me guess. She must have been white. No, she she's black. Oh, wait. So the tweet related to her race in some way? She's half black like Obama. Like, she claim, Roseanne claimed that that was not what she meant. Right. Which, you know, let, you know, well, let's get into that. So she claims that Valerie Jarrett, her skin tone is such that she did not know she was black. Right. Um, what do you think about that? Sure. So then what did the Planet of the Apes comment refer to? Exactly. Uh, it, you know... You know, it, it makes no sense that... I mean, explain. Like, just tell us. Right. Like, fine. Right. She's repeatedly, repeatedly said, this is a political tweet. I was upset at her about, you know, the Iran deal that she authored. Um, so, so first of all, she she basically said, look, uh, I, I, do, I am upset at this person, so I'm going to name two things about her that I dislike. One, that I think she's a Muslim. Well, that she's a Muslim terrorist, essentially, right. a supporter of Muslim uh, superiority. Right. And two, that she reminds me of the Planet of the Apes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe it's because it's uh, authoritarian or. Well, so what she <laughs> would <the> say, <laughs> what she would say and what her supporters will say is that if you look at one of the original doc- Planet of the Apes characters, you know, back in the 70s with Charlton Heston. One of the apes, the haircut and the look of the face kind right. of looks like Valerie Jarrett. Right. Which I have to say isn't a compelling argument, but it's possible. Like One of the apes. That, that, <laughs> that she, that it's like there is, there is a shred of possibility I could imagine where she actually did not think Valerie Jarrett was black because when you look at certain pictures of her, it's hard to tell. Other pictures, it's like, oh, sure. she's she's clearly black. Sure. Um, now, but I mean, okay. So, so pause, pause. Um, then let's talk about the lack of awareness of what that tweet could have been interpreted as. To- totally, <laughs> totally. And you know, it. Now, one could argue that Trump and many other people have tweeted you know, worse things. Oh, absolutely. So, <laughs> so and, if you want to group yourself with them, go ahead. <laughs> and so her, you know, this tweet became humongous. Like it must've been a slow news week or something, right. you know? And, and it was, you know, a huge, de- and not only was it a, you know, a media nightmare for her, which she, in interviews, I can tell she genuinely regrets. Yeah. Well, because it caused her inconvenience. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and then immediately her show was canceled. But 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 I mean, she regrets that it became a nightmare for her. Well, so I, you know, does she regret how it made her, the other gal feel? So, or well, right. So she never really apologizes. Right. She never really takes responsibility. She never really provides a, a compelling right. uh, uh, answer, which I find to be problematic and immature and shooting yourself in the foot. But at the same time, in, there's this interview at that they did, Vice did an interview with her in her home, and uh-huh. she seems very relaxed there. And I, she seems genuinely upset about it, you know, and and genuinely like, 
upset that it, it, you know, it hurt it, that it made people, she's not. So this is when you have a personality problem, it, it impairs your empathy. Yeah. So it's not like you don't have empathy. It just means that you're over-concerned with other, other needs. Yeah. And she has a tremendous need to be loved right. by society. You know, again, going back to her childhood, she's, she feels worthless. She's scared. There's a lot that she's being abused. Then she gets on the Mormon stage and she becomes this glorious, you know, human being and becomes loved and liked and supported. And she gets all this self-esteem. She goes home. She feels abused. So her only avenue that she feels that she can feel safe and secure is to be constantly looked at. Right. And liked on some level, or at least, you know, lookable. And then in this instance, just overnight, she does something to get attention and gets a lot of hatred. And then her show gets pulled. She gets essentially pulled off the stage. And no one wants to look at her anymore, you know? And so it's... uh, that it, I think she's genuinely upset about. You could call that a selfish way of approaching things, but I think given her abuse in life, I think that might be all she's capable of. Sure. So it's just that that same feeling could be true, whether she meant the tweet or not, whether you, she what, meant it in the racist way or not. What do you mean? Like she could still feel horrible about it, even if she meant it to be racist. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't see where you're getting at. So I'm saying like, I, I, I don't, I'm not surprised that she feels horrible about it. She lost her show. Everyone was upset. Yeah. But that proves nothing about either the intent and it certainly does not mean she, she tried to make it better, you know? So unlike how I defended her about the baseball thing, you know, here it's like, look, whether you, if you didn't mean it that way, then you're stupid. If you did mean it that way, you deserve the, the hatred you got. Now, I do think in general, we have a problem with consequences. We've talked about this in other episodes, like in the, in the one about eighth grade, actually, uh, that I feel that now we're in a, in a societal point where consequences are sort of unmeasured. So people do something and all of a sudden the internet rages and then the consequences can be either dire or none at all sort of randomly for people. Right, because there are other people like Mel Gibson or Alec Baldwin or Michael Richards. So Michael Richards, his career basically, you know... It's fine. Well, no, it was... It took an abrupt end. But but isn't he back? Like, he's okay now, right? I mean, he's okay, but, you know, he was on Seinfeld and sure. then he was doing stand up. No, I, I know it right. It did really hurt him so when that he, happened. So he was like Roseanne in that he was very much from my perspective negatively impacted. Yeah. And now when people think of Michael Richards, they think of that racist okay. rant. Um whereas Alec Baldwin and uh it has been completely sure. uh off the hook. He has said yeah. he's said some horrific things yeah. to people yeah, yeah, and totally. to his own daughter yeah you know uh, mel gibson is sort of in the middle like yeah. he's 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 done some horrible things and been punished yeah. but he's also still able to right. per, able to make so, i mean so my point with that is that like i i do like i do fear that like you know the internet judge jury executioner method seems like a bad idea in general uh but i'm just saying like i don't feel so bad in this case of, that she got into trouble um, I don't know if it was right to cancel her show because there's so many people involved in his show. 
that it's like, wow, someone tweets something and then everyone has to pay the, the consequence. That seems ridiculous. Well, um, the, 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 the parent company of ABC is Disney. Yeah. And uh, the uh, president is African-American. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, no, I get it, and and you know Disney is a company that runs away from or from sorry, scandal. I, the president of ABC is African American, okay. but um, in general, big companies run away from scandal fairly easily, which is understandable. I'm just saying, like, j- just kind of in general, when shows get canceled as a punishment for one person on the show, I often feel conflicted about it because I'm well, like, the Connors know. are back, you know, the yeah. TV show's back, right. And so I, most of the people yeah. have a job yeah, again. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's a good outcome. Yeah. You know? I'm not saying like don't fire her, don't do anything. I'm just like, anyways, that's a side note. What I, what I was trying to get at is that whether she meant it the worst way possible or not, it was still a very reckless comment to make on social media if you're paying any atten- attention to what happens these days on social media. And so... For her to be like feeling like terrible about it, I'm like, well, of course you feel terrible because like bad stuff happened to you. Right. But what about right. the, the next comment? day? If if no bad thing had happened, would she would you have, feel terrible? Right. Probably yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think she's racist? I don't know. I I think since where she grew up in this country, I'd be surprised if there wasn't some of that built into her, because like I mean, you know, she she grew up in a in a mostly white community in a church that the Mormon church that is uh, historically was extremely racist. Yeah. I mean, they, I think they, uh, they literally believed that native Americans were like a doomed race or something. Yeah. And, 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 and black people, dark skin, just dark skin people were the descendants of, I guess, Cain or whatever. Like it was just like the bad, the bad side of the, of the fence. Right. And uh, only until like the 70s, they started changing that or something. But whatever the case may be, I wouldn't be surprised if just like from where she grew up, she has some latent, you know, feelings there. But it's not like she's built a career on racism, you know? Right. In fact, Roseanne, the TV show, had a lot of progressive race kind of themes. Um, So I've reviewed as much as I can, like every interview and every statement she's made since the tweet. And what I can tell you, I'll just summarize it is that she said several different things that don't align with each other. She has many, she said many excuses, you know, I I didn't think she was black and I was on Ambien. And, and by the way, so a little bit about Ambien is, you know, she said I was on Ambien and then some people are like, oh, well, maybe that's why. And then Ambien actually tweeted or something saying that a side effect of Ambien isn't being a racist or something. Yeah, like I remember that, yes. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, lots of people take Ambien. That doesn't make them racist. <laughs> but I will tell you that I know clinically and personally uh, from observing people, because I know someone who took Ambien a lot, and it absolutely screws you up, particularly women, because... I don't know if what her dosage was, but they they primarily test pharmaceuticals on men. Yeah, and uh, just because they don't want to treat women, because what if they're pregnant or something? So I see. so they tend to, uh, and so it turns out, and for a lot of pharmaceuticals, it doesn't really matter because the dosage is uh-huh. the same. But Ambien, for whatever reason, is uh, that 
the you only need half the dosage for women. Oh, interesting. And so a lot of dosages were being prescribed to women that were twice the amount they needed. Right. Plus, even the regular dose of Ambien, it is a highly psychoactive substance. Yep. It's not like melatonin where you get – or like when you take a Sudaf or whatever, NyQuil, and you get a little drowsy. Right. Um, Ambien, it, something will click in you uh, when, it, when it really kicks in. And you become a different person, and you right. can actually – there are accounts of people getting in their cars and driving around town yeah. or making a cake, eating the cake, going to bed, waking up, going to their kitchen, going, who destroyed my kitchen? They, they have no memory of doing it. Yeah. So uh, you know, could Ambien have affected her? She also said she drank uh, a couple beers before going to bed. Yeah, uh, so what, what happens in all those cases is the very next morning – in the moment of sobriety, the person goes, oh, my God, I got to delete this and start apologizing up left and right, right. because I'm aware that it's a terrible tweet because I only did it because I was crazed on Ambien or whatever. You don't double down and say exactly, uh, you know, what? So, I didn't mean anything. I, I, you know, so that's what I'm saying. It's like yeah. when you have a personality issue. So, you know, when you're a child and you're being accused of things and blah, blah, blah. You learn to just reflexively deflect yeah. and because that's what keeps you safe. And so she exhibits this so well. Right. Like, I, you know, I won't, I won't bore you with all the notes I have on this, but like, for example, she was on Hannity and it's like one of the few Hannity episodes I can actually watch because Hannity actually is chastising her for the tweet for the most part. Uh -huh. And at one point he asks her, because she's not really coming forward with any kind of apologies. He's like, well, you know, if Valerie Jarrett, Jarrett were watching this, what would you like to say to her? And, you know, she's like, well, I'd like to say, like, let's have a conversation. You know, let's use this as a teachable moment. You know, America needs to wake up, you know, because, you know, she just kind of goes on this little rant. And he's and then a little later, he's like, well, you know, I want to get you back to, you know, if what would you like to say to her? You know, is there something you like to say to her? She's like, well, you know. Uh, this is a teachable moment. You know, she just goes on this rant. And then finally, uh, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes in, Hannity's like, um, would you like to apologize to her? You know, and, 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 he's, and she's like, yeah, uh, I've already apologized to her. And then and he's like, well, and then they kind of veer off. And then eventually he's like, look, if I were in your shoes, I would want to look into the camera, right? Because this was her first interview right. after the tweet. I would want to look into the camera. He's like spoon feeding her. Yeah. Here. I would like to look into the camera and I would like to say, I am so sorry yeah. for, for what I did. And I was wrong and I'm sorry. Yeah. I would, that's what I would say. You're teed up. Go. And then, she, and then she says, oh, okay. Okay, fine. And then, you know, she looks into the camera and she says, I'm so sorry you thought I was racist. <sighs> Oh, so close, so close. And then she kind of talks about a couple other things, and then she says, the woman needs a new haircut, seriously. She needs, oh. she needs a new haircut. Um, wow. Which, you know, so again, this exhibits a, persona a personality problem. Right. This is a person who shoots themselves in the foot. Yeah, absolutely. It would be so, even if you didn't believe it, yeah. there is a proper response. You're on Hannity, you know, Absolutely. who is probably the last person I would think to be on the side of Valerie right. Jarrett. Right. And he's like, even I yeah. would say, I am so sorry. <laughs> right. 
and you know tease it up for her. Oh she's like, God. and and she looked kind of pissed off. She's looking at the camera. She's like, I'm so sorry you thought I was racist. You know, and it's just like, wow. Again, it's it's that yeah. it's that you know neurological barrier to protecting the self yeah. against intrusion yeah. and of narcissism of me, 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 me. Yeah. And, you know, that's a good example of that. Um, so uh, there's a lot of other things we go into, but kind of ran out of time. So what's the final word about Roseanne Barr and her psychology? Uh, I have some fond memories of the show, and I respect that she was, I am not to the degree it says on her website, but I do respect that she was uh, in a, an innovation and she pushed some boundaries. Um, and I used to really enjoy it. Uh, I also, like I said, I, I don't think she, I don't think she deserves so much hatred about the national anthem thing, but overall I, I feel bad because whether she, whether she is this much on Ambien or that much on Ambien, it sounds like she has had a, a rough, time mentally here and there and and so i i kind of wish that she found more of a balance and she didn't have to shoot herself in the foot so much yeah i wish she had and i don't know if she does i wish she had a clinician or a couple clinicians who could kind of help her stabilize herself and you know that she could go to them and be like I'm I'm kind of getting worked up about this Valerie Jarrett thing. Okay, well, let's talk about it before right. you have to express yourself in a self-destructive way. Right, right. You know, like what 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 are some things you could do that would be, you know, more in line with your overall goals? You know, right. what do you want to get out of this? Um, you know, do you want to tweet random things or do you want to maybe make a change in the world? Right. You know, there's a way. Let's think about this. Um, you know, I, I wish that she could have that, that you know, because I think that would have helped her. After, after watching, you know, I'm glad that, so a lot of people asked me to do this and I'm glad that I did because I, once again, I, I have much more sympathy for her and compassion for her situation. Um, I see her really as a tragic character. I, I don't necessarily disagree with, you know, the backlash and the consequences she's incurred, but, but I do feel bad for her. And I think that she deserves something like I, if she wants to be on stage, I feel like she deserves something. What I wish though, was that she wasn't so attracted to oddball conspiracy ideas, you know? Um, like she's on Joe Rogan and you know, she had sort of come full circle on this and this is just recent and she's, you know, she's talking about the Connors, the TV show. And instead of being magnanimous and like, she was sort of apathetic before. She's like, I don't know. They're going to make another TV show. But she's like totally criticizing it and saying like, it's going to be crap without her. And, you know, which actually might be true, but it's like, why would you say such a thing? I mean, weren't they your friends supposedly? Why burn all houses down? Yeah. Like that's, there's no purpose in that other than to make you look bad. Um, she says she wants to, her next chapter in life is to make, is to teach women how to raise their sons because she says she raised her sons really well. And she thinks that she basically said all women in America do not know how to raise their sons. Wow. Yeah. So that's a narcissistic statement, right? Um, And Joe Rogan is just showering her. I don't know. I don't listen to a lot of Joe Rogan. Is he frequently very, you know, supportive of his guests? Because, 
There's sometimes when I'm like, he Joe. He challenges guests a lot, but he also, you know, says positive things about him. But the the portion I listened to, it was just like, just all showering her, you know. Um, and uh, uh, she says, you know, about the tweet, she says, I never said she looked like anything. And it's proof that everyone is under mass mind control. Oh, boy. Uh, still not apologetic. She, you know, she talks about, you know, social justice warriors, they always have to have a target and I'm not going to bow down to them. So she's, she's working this tweet, planet of the apes into a complete like farce from social justice warriors because they're ridiculous. Even though Hannity and all the right were against her as well. You know, it's just like, so it's that kind of, self-destruction that I just wish she didn't have because I don't think moving forward, there are good things for her given her attitudes. It just makes me sad for her. She's not getting any younger. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. (laughs) 